Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And welcome to T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. The most fun you'll ever listen to while you're folding your clothes. Now let's get this straight. This is not your average podcast. T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio is super fun, super crazy. It's pretty much an in-your-face conversation. That's the good thing about us. We don't do interviews. We do conversations. All of my guests, all of my co-hosts, we chill. We drink, we play games, we have the song of the week, we have the creative curse word of the week, as long as you're having fun as our guest. Speaking of guests, each week I'm going to go through my whole contact list and dive head first into the world of music, gaming, exotic cars, tech, strippers probably, doctors probably, probably strippers that are only stripping so they can pay for tuition to become a doctor. You never know. My wife is a certified bartender. She'll make you a drink while you're here. We'll get you drunk and make you play VR after. It's a lot going on, but that's what it's all about over here at T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. See you soon, baby! Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Ben Taylor, and he and I were extremely excited to record together even before everything that transpired between when we agreed to record and when we did, and that is really the focus of this podcast. We talk at length about the epic Bucks nets Game 5 Kevin Durant's performance, some of the tactical decisions that did and did not happen, and where the series goes from here, and we pretended for that stretch of time that everything that happened after Game 5, everything that happened Wednesday morning, did not. And so we spend a lot of time focusing on what was an iconic and extremely memorable game. And then at the end of the podcast, we get into all of the drama of today with Chris Paul and the health and safety protocols, Kawhi Leonard having a knee injury, which is feared to be an ACL injury, the firings, the partings of ways, and everything else. So I love having Ben on, love navigating this with him, talking legacy and everything else. And I hope you will enjoy it as well. Thanks so much for coming on. Of course, always, always a pleasure, and um, and I'm looking forward to. I've got, I've got, I've got some rants today, Danny, about the playoffs and mainly the Milwaukee Bucks. But I don't want to, I don't want to feel like I'm picking on the Bucks. So I'll try to keep it to a minimum. I'll try to keep my, I'll try to keep myself under control. And for the next period of time, it, we're going to imagine that it was so fortunate that we had a quiet news morning on Wednesday, so we can appreciate and really delve deep dive deep into Tuesday's Game 5, Brooklyn without Kyrie Irving with a extremely limited James Harden, thought it was going to take a superhuman effort from Kevin Durant and a lot of other things going right for Brooklyn to keep this a series for them to take a 3-2 lead, and lo and behold, that's what happened. Yeah, this, there's been no news this Wednesday, as far as I'm concerned. I'm still living in Tuesday because that was a crazy game. That was like a classic crazy basketball game. And I guess we could just start with Harden, who... So I was trying to think of historical parallels of players who have played that injured to essentially be like a traffic cone on the court. He just kind of jogged up and down from possession to possession and largely stood in place. And it really felt like the Bucks lost that game against a team playing four men. Did you feel that way as well? I did. 
And as great as Kevin Durant was, and, and he was absolutely great, we'll talk about that, and, and the memorable Jeff Green performance and numerous other things, There, it, it's interesting because I think that, by and large, Mike Budenholzer has done a very good job, or not very good job, a better job than usual, of adapting his approach to the circumstances that have changed in this series. So, like, I thought one of the things that Milwaukee did really well in Game 5, which was relatively new, was something... I had been harping on, Nate Duncan had been harping on about how to attack a switch and that you have to go decisively and quickly. It's also come up in Clippers Jazz, of course. And the Bucks were taking their time. They were letting the Nets get kind of more settled in, a little bit more together in terms of help defense. And especially in that first quarter when Milwaukee went up 29-15, one of the biggest things that the Bucks did well was Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton. When they got an inferior defender on a switch, they were going right away and they were pushing to the free throw line. If they could get closer, they could do that. And that's a part of why Milwaukee in that first, they were seven to 10 in the paint and they were getting mostly really good looks. And then a couple of times they generated help and then they were able to get it to Giannis or whoever else. And because they were getting so many stops, they were, while the fast break points, you know, as formally done by the league, the league only gave them two fast break points. There was a lot that was in like transition and semi-transition. Early, yeah, exactly. Early offense. Early offense. And and that for for the Bucks, just like basically any team that exists, early offense is better than any other offense. And so I, I think that the the Bucks, so those sorts of elements, I thought they, they did better. Now, why it took to game five, considering everybody knew what Brooklyn was going to run, at least like their primary stuff defensively we saw it in the last series for the most part and it's their identity but it did get more extreme now that Harden was back they had to switch more because Harden's on the floor and that's really what you can do so I will praise Budenholzer for that however (laughs) yes however (laughs) you are facing an opponent who simultaneously cannot move and also they didn't know this at the beginning of the game is going to be on the floor for the entire game and all of a sudden that becomes, you know, to use a legal term, it's a superseding intervening event. You know, that becomes the thing that you have to focus on on both ends of the four, if we're being honest, is you're not facing healthy James Harden. You're not facing even like limited James Harden. You're facing James Harden who can't drive, James Harden who can't move, James Harden who, at least in this game, was short on all of his threes. And that's the thing that I think Brooklyn failed most thoroughly, was understanding the limitations of your opponent, embracing those, and working within that. And, you know, it could be as basic as, you know, doing a jab step and a crossover instead of just a straight line drive, or not just posting James Harden up where all he has to do is be, like, strong and still. Stand there, yeah. That's the only thing he can do. And that was the abject failure for me of what of what Milwaukee didn't do more more what they didn't do than what they did the you know separating out those two is kind of unnecessary and that was immensely frustrating because there are so many attacks so many different things that a team can do when a central player to an opponent is as limited as James Harden was you're you're so calm about this oh I was indignant last night I mean we're doing the live (laughs) show and I'm just like just make him move like it's and the funniest thing is Harden he's all like defensively he's almost always a bad second effort guy like a lot of the it was kind of like Nate has brought up that Harden has at times pre-Nets incidentally become kind of a caricature of himself where it's like all the things that we used to rip on him he can only do this he like he's like fine I'm just gonna do that even more 
but to to like this was kind of another extreme like the dude can't move do something now my hour is up thank you ben uh, okay so no i i i'm now you're making me feel a little more comfortable because it's the next morning and i still i, I ended up i've seen the game many times i ended up rewatching a, a little bit of the 1970 finals between the knicks and the lakers game seven where willis reed i think this is the closest i could think of willis reed comes out and he's dragging his leg around the court against Will Chamberlain. And in game six, with the Knicks up three to two in the series, Wilt has like 45 points, 27 rebounds, huge monster game, uh, attacking more from what I can remember. And Willis Reed was out that game with his injured ankle. So they come in for game seven. Willis gets a cortisone shot right before the game. And the dude is literally dragging his leg around the court. He just like Harden. He plays most of the first half. He played like 20, I want to say 22 of the 24 minutes in the first half, something like that. Went for a little bit longer in the second half. It was like a 30-point game. The game was over. They shelved him. But quite famously, and this is what I wanted to recheck, like Wilt did not attack him. He and and this was a day where you couldn't put a guy. You there was no mismatch hunting. You weren't trying to yeah. stretch him as a big out to the perimeter and target his mobility. So much like what we saw on a play or two in the fourth quarter last night, where the Bucks are posting Harden. Harden's a big, strong, broad dude. Now, in Willis Reed's case, it was harder for him to plant weight on an ankle that just had no more like it looked terrible. You would never otherwise play. You could barely run. But even then, all you have to do is stand in the post and lean on your opponent. Well, Harden uses all his weight. It's a hamstring. So maybe a little easier versus his explosive running that we didn't see any of. And they post him up down the stretch. And it's like out of all the things you could do to target James Harden while he's out on the court, that's the best you could come up with and i tweeted during the game somewhat tongue-in-cheek like do the bucks know that he's injured because well, and, and there, there were a couple other ones too that you could think about so one was so there was a play that drove me completely insane it was about five minutes left in the game drew holiday gets harden on a gets harden i mean it wasn't necessarily on a switch harden was defending holiday a lot during the during the fourth quarter of that game and holiday he has the ball kind of looks like he's going to go into an iso package instead he just slow dribbles into a mid-ranger he didn't even make he just like Harden could just shuffle like as, as limited as his shuffle steps were he get there just like what the hell man like you could do that but then the other one which i think in some ways was it wasn't more egregious because offensive players have more control over where things go because they have the ball you know like you get that that you know defense by its very nature is somewhat reactive even though it can force reactions in the offense and i think that the ones that were more striking to me in some ways were at times the way the bucks defended james harden you know using having really good individual defenders on him where or trapping time, or trapping or having brooke lopez get all the way out there you know instead you know instead of protecting the rim or you know like there were there were numerous times and some of it it's, it's hard to change what is it's difficult to change what is hardwired in players and this is why shooting reputation like who you close out to is largely reputational is because it is significantly more difficult to understand like oh this good shooter just doesn't have the jump shot anymore or this guy's hurt but he can't move he's not driving at all like James Harden had two drives in the game as I can recall he might have had a third but he had two that I can recall one he kind of got to this weird floater that didn't go in and then the other one Chris Middleton 
who could have basically just run circles around him like that fast dog that's running around the slow dog at a dog park. He could have done that. Instead, he tries to run through Harden. And you know what happens when you try to run through James Harden? He's gonna Three jump points. in. He's gonna jump into you and either yeah. get two free throws or get an and one. And he got the and one. That was the only made field goal that Harden had in the entire game. And so those basically what that did is it gave the Nets it gave the Nets a lot to because Harden he was extremely limited and in the first half, you know, you could see the the defensive problems a lot more than he did in the second half. But he played an important part in Kevin Durant's immaculate game too, because he was one of the only guys who could find people for passes. He's Harden is an unbelievable passer, and he had also some crazy inbounds, including one to Durant, where it's like, okay, if he wasn't on the floor, there are probably 10 to, 10 to 15 points that the Nets couldn't have created out of thin air because they didn't have it. And so that made it possible for Durant to have part of, part of how Durant had the game he did. I mean, a lot of that was Kevin Durant being unbelievable. But also that made it so that Kevin Durant's unbelievable game and Jeff Green going seven for eight from three was enough for them to actually win. Because it was very possible that those things would not have been enough for Brooklyn to actually come out victorious in game five. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you have a game where there's a comeback like that, you're going to have heroes. You're going to need great play to make up a margin. It wasn't an astronomical margin, but given the circumstances and down by almost 20 and that that score before the run in the third quarter, it felt like the score had been between an 11 and 17 point margin since the very beginning of the game, right out of the gate. The teams were just kind of stuck in that zone and Durant's shot making. I mean, of course, we could. We could spend 10 minutes for as as many Bucks rants as we can come up with. Uh, We could have the same level of praise for Durant's shot making last night. None none bigger than that one at the end of the shot clock where he just kind of like whipped his body up and threw it at the rim and he's like ah, that, that that might go in then it goes in and he's like oh yeah <laughs> that that was huge um just incredible shot making on offense played a, a fantastic overall game and and of course very rare in history for someone to log all 48 minutes score that many points and score that efficiently just just an all-time performance and as you mentioned earlier Blake Green as I was calling them all night between the two of them shooting like what nine of 12 from downtown or something you know you need that in in games like that but of course that's part of what makes the frustration with the Bucks so great it's not necessarily there's a giant talent disparity it's that there are all these intricacies in the game last night it was kind of the four on five with Harden out there it's and I and again I I don't I don't want to beat a dead horse but I don't feel like people just mention this that much anymore Danny the Nets aren't playing big people at all they're at all period so and like Blake, or like that's that's something else that I thought the Bucks did better in this game, which I'm infuriated that it took five for them to figure it out. Blake Griffin is not a good rim protector. <laughs> like they're it's break breaking news. Yeah, yeah, and so like I mean that's it's something that has come up a lot over the last few years when teams have tried to replicate some of what the Warriors were able to accomplish. And one of the key distinctions that makes them special that has been very difficult for other teams to replicate is that they were able to go small, but also defend well. And it wasn't just switching. It's also because you you have to have the have to have. It's way better to have supplemental rim protection and have some guys that can defend right, in the post. Right. And so having Draymond Green and at times having Kevin Durant when he was on the Warriors during that run, it gave them more in those circumstances. And so if you're if somebody's so if they were facing a buck, a team like the Bucks, where they have a 
talent like Giannis who wants to go downhill, who's far better at that than anything else, then there's somebody there. And and Giannis, to his credit, at times during this game, especially in the first half, was going hard after the basket. And just the, that it's not only the, his primary defender, but the supplemental guys like they they're it's that they're so small and they can't even really affect it and I love Bruce Brown that's just not what he does well you know like Bruce Brown can do other things and Jeff Green he's not strong enough either and at in the fourth quarter Giannis went after him more aggressively and so that that was an important an important element of this game too is that they were they were able to understand those and and those advantages aren't going away and I think that's a part of why I expect the Bucks to win game six and I think there's a pretty significant chance that they win it going away is that they ha- that they're going to be able to attack the basket. They're going to be able to do all the stuff, and hopefully the coaching staff, Budenholz are on down. They go, okay, there were a bunch of things that we did well in this game. If we just do more of that and adjust a few of the other things, we should be fine. And Milwaukee shot well in this game. It wasn't a circumstance like there. you can think about like game one for the Jazz or numerous other ones where it's like, okay, we did a lot well, but we couldn't make a damn shot. So we're definitely going to win because of that. No, it's it's not that. But it took an unbelievable performance and and some strategic and individual brain farts for this game to even be as close as it was and for the Nets to win. See, you, you have more faith than I do because I started to feel this way. Like I learned my lesson as the series was progressing. They this was hanging for them right in their face in game one and they came out in game one and dominated the interior and then just mysteriously decided to stop using their height advantage they never like so uh, Nate Nate has a theory on this and I think he's right that the Bucks developed a strategy for how they wanted to win this series when Harden was available. And then they did it for game one because you can't really change midstream. That's too, you know, you're not going to ask your coaching staff and your players to do that. But the problem is that didn't go away when Harden left the series. It stayed largely there and they decided to go to other stuff. I mean, I, I think for game one, that might make some sense. But after that, I feel like I feel like when Brooklyn says to themselves, we have to put Nick Claxton on the court, that's when Milwaukee is winning. And they might not win the series, but they're winning strategically. They're 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 dictating to the opponent and they're attacking a weakness and making them say, huh, you know, playing uh, uh, Jeff Green and Kevin Durant, all 240 pounds of them combined at the um, center position or whatever you want to call this, whatever they're doing, whatever, whatever you want to call this experimentation, isn't going to be able to necessarily deal with the fallout of 280 pounds of Brooke Lopez, 250 pounds of Giannis, even Chris Middleton. I was joking with someone, um, I think it was Sirit on the last episode of Thinking About Basketball podcast like chris middleton could play center for the nets yeah (laughs) that's 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 how the nets are playing and as an aside this isn't being talked about enough in my opinion because dan tony he wasn't the first person in phoenix to say let's try to downsize our lineup let's take let's get rid of the center and let's put amari stoudemire a quote-unquote power forward at center and then we'll have versatile forwards we'll have sean marion do stuff because he can do it and that's going to give us these tremendous offensive advantages and hopefully we can plug up stuff on the defense um you mentioned the warriors same thing like draymond green his rim protection his versatility and then the forwards they could play next to him uh, and switching and the size clay thompson even harrison barnes guys like Igodala, guys like that this, this is not new. I think what's new is I feel like D'Antoni along with Nash, they've just said, well, what if we just play no big people? 
Or, and, course, and especially no big people who play like big people. Because like Blake what, Griffin, Blake Griffin is in certain ways a center in the modern NBA. He can't move well enough to really play any other position and or anything else. But he doesn't protect the rim particularly well. He's not doesn't have those help instincts. Has drawn some charges in this series as as he has throughout his Nets tenure. But outside of that, you know, he's not he's not affecting shots. So I I I I'm sure some people will say, well, what about Blake Griffin? What about Nick Claxton? Nick Claxton played two minutes in this game, right? Um, and Claxton is even on the smaller side for a for a big as the, in traditional vintage, maybe modern vintage. I mean, you could think about somebody like Bam, who wouldn't have been a center before now. Being a center is kind of a an analog to an extent. Yeah, I mean they they have tall, you know, Durant's like six ten. Blake Griffin's six, I think he measured six, eight and a half without shoes. Um, you know, they have players who they play that are tall, but they're not traditional bigs. When Jeff, Jeff Green and Kevin Durant were teammates on the Thunder, uh, on the Sonics in 2008, and both those guys were playing on the perimeter. I think Durant played shooting guard that year. He did. And, and Green played small forward. And I mean, this is not boxing. You don't, it's not normal for you to go through your career and start as a shooting guard and then be like, yeah, I've, I've leveled up some weight classes. I'm a center now. Uh, but that's kind of what the Nets are doing. And there might be a brilliance to it in that you can make it work without giving too much away on defense, given the general shape of the modern NBA, given the way other teams are playing having taken so much size off the court in favor of skill and speed. And I think it's worked. But what's so interesting is they have a gauntlet in front of them, health aside, because we can get back to, uh, you know, what Harden's going to look like in game six, Kyrie Irving's availability. Uh, There's other health stuff that we have to get to. But just clearly the road that seems to be in front of them. They're playing Milwaukee, a giant team that can beat you attacking the rim. That's how they do it. Next up looks like Philadelphia, probably another ginormous team that's offense kind of is built around going into a dominant post score. And then in the West, who knows, there could be uh, another big team as well. So it's kind of fascinating that the first team they've encountered seems to be able to have tremendous success inside. And through five games of the series, now again, to your point, there are moments in the last couple of games where Giannis uh, has looked to go inside more versus settle on the outside, or the Nets have tried to get downhill in stretches during the game, but then it falls apart. And that probably at this point is what's the most discombobulating for me as a viewer, because you don't want to skewer the players or the coaching staff. They're clearly trying, even if even if their strategy isn't ideal. But you just go, wait a second, you were just you were just doing the thing earlier that didn't look that hard to do. And now you stopped doing the thing. And I think, you know, plays become symptomatic, symptomatic or symbolic. That's the word I'm looking for of this kind of meltdown. Almost. It's like it's like a friend texted me. It's like watching the tennis match in, in Royal Tenenbaums where <laughs> you're, 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 you're like, you're like, wait a second. OK, so you're oh, my God, you're going to actually switch and target James Harden and Drew Holiday can easily get by him. He does it every time or it has to be a foul. And whoop, 18 foot step back air ball. <laughs> you can you can take that shot without a defender there it's just sequences like that that are uh you know break break my brain a little bit speaking of breaking your brain uh there are a couple different ways to quantify it but here was as i would phrase it the most common starting five for the 2007 2008 seattle supersonics earl watson please kevin durant jeff green chris wilcox at power forward and mm-hmm. then either Kurt Thomas or Johan Petro at center. Yeah, that see, that's a big team. <laughs> uh man, I I 
I don't know what the all-time low for uh, speed is on the court in a single game, but if you look at the tracking data from last night, players typically run about three to four miles an hour, somewhere in there, in, in average, the aggregate when you track how long they were on the court and the distance they covered according to the tracking data. And most players in the game were pretty consistent with that last night. Like you got a bunch of three twos, three fives, you got some three sevens, three fours. And then you go to James Harden is 2.76. Again, Willis Reed was the closest one I can come up with, but I just cannot remember a team playing like that. Uh, I mean, and they, and they won with a huge comeback. I, why didn't Bobby Portis play? What do you think of that decision? He was so good at game four. And he was so good at I, game I've four. Been, I've been an outspoken Bobby Portis critic. I didn't think he had it, but going away going away from him, and I mean, Durant was torching was torching basically everything, so maybe you want to change some of the rules a little bit, but but even to not, not try it at all, to go to those weird Elijah Bryant minutes doing some offense-defense in the first half, which is extremely unusual. Um, that was... And like there have been a lot of times in this ser- in various series where in this one too where the activity around Bryn Forbes like yeah sure you can attack him but especially if you're going to end up doing some doubling anyway okay you can can do some things there um, th- I understand to an extent why they went away from PJ Tucker especially because he committed a bunch of fouls but because once once Brooklyn and this was a, a thing that they could that they could do and they did a much better job of this in game five it's like you can get when Durant is screened for and it's not you know like top siding or anything like that especially when he's screened for with the ball in his hands PJ Tucker is a much less valuable defender because he has to recover incidentally that's when you could go to oh I don't know if you have Drew Holiday on your team that could be a useful a useful time even though Durant can ball rack him at times like get there but so like the, the Bucks, I don't think they push the right buttons. I don't know that pushing better buttons would yield a significantly superior result. We don't, we don't really know that. But I think that is a transition into you are maybe the best person I could talk to about you're good at immediately contextualizing. It's something we've done in our conversations before. I thought this this to me was the when you factor in degree of difficulty, importance of the game and what he had to do. 48 minutes. This was the biggest, the best performance of Kevin Durant's career. And there are plenty of other candidates. And I'm not saying it's an easy call or anything like that. And I also haven't done the digging that I may do at some point. But first of all, do you kind of preliminarily agree with that assessment? And second of all, you know, whether it's greatest peaks or anything else, like how does this affect the legacy of Kevin Durant? Well, firstly, I think it's 100% the best I've seen him play. Um, now, I got to be careful with that, that statement because it's a very offensive centric kind of thinking. Uh, so I don't want to dismiss defense. But in terms of his offense and really the shot making and kind of the there's brilliance in the shot making, but also just the floor game that he played. And again, you know, I don't I, well, I want to leave my Bucks rant in the rear view because I could go all day on them. But Durant struggles handling certain pressure when it comes to coverages, double teams, overloads, things like that. Milwaukee has had really good defensive possessions for about three three games and change running in this series, and they were still pretty good last night. The thing I think I would have liked to seen from the Bucks is less about the man coverages that we were just talking about and more about, like, if you're going to trap James Harden, which seems completely unnecessary 
you know, I don't, I'm not even sure what kind of defensive attention from a, from a matchup standpoint you need to give Harden at all last night, given that it was so clear to everyone he could barely run. Spend some time and throw some different coverages, junk coverages, traps, whatever, at Durant, because that decision-making typically isn't as fluid for him as, let me get to this spot and pull up. So whether it's drop coverage, let me get to the elbow and pull up, or he, he's one of those guys that seems to be a, uh, love his spots, you know, a lot of scores will love particular spots Carmelo Anthony very famous recently for that like when he catches the ball in that area simple move catch dribble the defense can be phenomenal the contest can be phenomenal but that's more comfortable for him and then he mixed that in last night I thought with just some incredible drives at the right time just absolutely incredible drives early offense delayed transition both the decision the body control the finish I think one of them was an and one uh in that third quarter run or in the fourth quarter just off the top of my head and then of course you know a pull up three here and there uh we talked about the big one late which was uh, (laughs) again a possession where Harden couldn't do anything completely dribbled out the clock because he's kind of playing like a stationary quarterback role at that point up at the top looking for cutters throws it to Durant he hits a three I, he I hits do. a three over a wonderful contest by Chris Middleton. Like, Chris Middleton it's was right there. Perfect. It was perfect. Absolutely bonkers shot. So, given the stage, given the game, that was a classic game. Um, it, yeah, I I have a really hard time. Now, Durant's had a handful of really great playoff games, some against teams like the Clippers that don't do it as much for me in the early rounds. And oh, oh, some... I, I didn't say this last night on the pod. This was one that I thought was wild. So, Kevin Durant before last night, he had three different games where he scored 45 or more in the playoffs they all occurred within a week and a half and it was during that 2019 run by the Warriors when right, right. he he had against the clip the late Clippers, series in yeah. the Clippers and then the early part of the series against the Rockets. Yeah, yeah. No, he was he was white hot that week. Um, and he's had you know great great scoring runs. I think the 2012 postseason he had some big ones, but. I just think the totality of the game. Um, well, and the, the, and the degree of difficulty too, and the the essential nature of the game. Like if they lose it, if they lose it, it's basically over. And well, and if he plays any worse, they lose. It's it's a huge game. Uh, it's a game where uh, both teams have championship aspirations in a in a bracket right now where almost every team has a legit claim to win. And it was against an elite defense. I mean, there's no other way around it. The the Bucks have a game and a half basically in this series their defense fell apart but for the rest of the last three seasons for the rest of this postseason for the rest of this series they've been very good and my criticisms aside of trying to change your strategy uh and and it's not just because durant made shots danny i just want to be clear about that yes it's it's because Kyrie irving's out and you're and the nets chose to fill up one of their roster slots last night one of their spots on the court in the lineup i should say with Harden. And so that's why guys like, you know, Bruce Brown or I think Sham had played more minutes, but uh, Bruce Brown ended up with what, like 15 minutes played or something. Um, You just had less activity from the other players who were out there. And so why not make it more difficult for the guy who at the end of the night scores, you know, like 45% of your points or whatever? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And I don't know for sure where where things are going from here i think milwaukee wins game six and i have no idea what in the world happens in game seven but it was a performance for the ages for kevin durant and to do that you know he's he's had this unbelievable year coming off of an acl injury age 32 turning 33 before next season it's it's awesome 
I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because it made me think of Michael Jordan's comeback, ah. which was which was a different thing, right? Because he wasn't playing basketball, he was playing baseball. But you think about the age and the time off and then the number of games played like Jordan gets an incredible pass. So actually what made me think about this was another frustrating moment for the Bucks, where you look at the final score of the game. It's 114, 108. Maybe it gets lost in the shuffle that it was a classic came right down to the end, down to the final possession. And Giannis drops that perfect Chris Middleton pass. Yeah. Well, right, it, it, was right a little, it was a little low, but it was it was it was That's an opportunity. The, you you got to catch that pass. Yeah. Or and you got to You have to catch that pass and do something with it. And he neither of those things happened. I mean, there were some some free throw misses from from Durant too, which was which was pretty surprising. Though he was thirteen of sixteen overall, Giannis was four of seven from the free throw line. And he was he was let the his, let the record book show. He was very bummed out. He did not get get to fifty. Yes. He was very upset when he missed that free throw. Well, and he was. I mean, that free throw also also would have completely sealed the game. And you had that weird sequence where the the Nets were ostensibly back, but Giannis basically, if Harden doesn't foul him, Giannis gets a dunk which would have cut it from four to two, I believe. Instead, he gets fouled, and I think he splits those two. Yep. And then Durant gets the free throw when P.J. Tucker was held. It gets the rebound when P.J. Tucker was held. And I, I, and, and I, it's, yeah, so it was a fascinating game, a legacy-making. And so, and, and I mean, it was also great. Like, I don't think, personally, for I, I don't think in narratives the way that some people do, that Durant needed that iconic moment, but the, the three over Middleton was that. And I mean, it looked honestly, it looked like the game was pretty close to over then. But credit to the Bucks for attacking right away, getting something really quickly. But we won't get the full context until we see what happens in this series and beyond. But an indelible and incredible performance by him that had a lot of other fascinating contributing factors that we spent a lot of time on in this. But I wanted to give this game its just desserts because it deserved it. Well, that was part two of your question about the legacy. And, and the connection to Jordan was that he played something like 17 games in 95 off the top of my head. Maybe he played 17 when he broke his foot. I can't remember. But so, something like that when he came back after playing baseball and so Durant slightly more regular season games this year he played 35 regular season games but you know I think sometimes we take for granted the rust or or coming back from time off like that and Jordan of course gets in terms of his legacy he gets a pass because of that time off Nick Anderson ripping him at the end of uh, one of the key playoff games in their loss to Orlando in the second round that year and here Durant in the second round um, do I think it affects his peak no probably not but it's absolutely astounding that he's like what at worst 90 97 percent of the player he was yeah and he had he had to work so much defensively in this game too now that defensive work didn't always bear fruit but it's it's amazing and i mean to burn the candle at both ends playing all 48 minutes i i've that was incredible that was my favorite part the the all 48 minutes was my favorite part um you usually only see that in game seven and part of me was wondering if steve nash's personality came out more in that game you know sometimes as a coach your your coaching decisions uh, reflect a part of your personality and between him playing harden like everyone can see Harden shouldn't be playing, and I feel like Nash was like, "Nah, this this is warfare. This is this is what we do." Well, 
And and he's like, Durant, you just play the whole game. And it was it was amazing. Two two more thoughts. One, yeah, yeah, Harden was limited, but also it was basically Harden or Mike James. And I think this Harden was probably provided more value, especially with the way the Bucks defended him and 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 played him on offense, than Mike James would have, which is which is insane. And you think about like that's the ripple effects of the Kyrie Irving injury and everything else. And then the other part of it is the you know like having it basically you know the the all the work that goes into having great facilities and having a, a, employing a wonderful medical staff and i understand the tension that leads to it and you think about the power that the three stars in brooklyn wield within the organization and we've never in many ways had a better crystallization of that than this where james harden is ruled out and says wakes up and says i'm playing and then plays 45 minutes and 38 seconds in that game. <laughs> like, I've, I've never seen a swing like that. And when you consider that, as far as we know, nothing changed for him physically. Like this was not a circumstance where, oh, I had to, I had to sleep, on the, sleep, sleep on it and see how the knee felt. No, no, that isn't what happened here. It's just like, screw it. I'm going. We're, we're making this happen. And then to the extent that it did, made it happen. Man, Harden really, uh, really crushed some of his playoff numbers from the first round, where he had those, where he had those record-setting numbers against the Celtics. I, I, I updated, you know, my, uh, my, I have stats that I um, give to subscribers at Patreon.com/slash/ThinkingBasketball subscribers, and I updated this morning. It was the first time Harden wasn't at the top of the leaderboard, and I was like, wow, you really that one game going around the court for 46 minutes and just bumbling, you know, what was he one for 10 or whatever he ended up shooting on, on some of the shots that he attempted. But yeah, I, I also, um, I will ignore the Tyler Johnson slander built into that entire presentation that you just made. What, what else? Uh, is there anything else we can get to in this game? Thanasis Antetokounmpo defensive sub was fun. <laughs> yeah. um, that, Bruce, Bruce, that's, my, I mean, that's my wife's favorite part of this series, by the way. She says, does he get to go in because Giannis asked him to play? Yeah. Uh, no, but I think Thanasis brings something with energy and defense and all that. But he is so limited offensively, especially when you it, there is this weird parallel and also discrepancy where like I, act, I've long believed actually that if the league hadn't changed as dramatically as it did during the ten years after, that Brook Lopez and Robin Lopez actually kind of could have played together. They occupied different spaces offensively, though now Robin is developed as a post player now, so, so you have all this weird stuff. But Giannis and Thanasis can't because neither one of them can shoot, and so yeah, you can use it as a defensive sub and, and some of that kind of stuff. But the energy he plays with and everything else is interesting, and then. There was a time where it seemed like the second most impactful injury in this series could potentially be Bruce Brown, where he just, you know, once he he had that weird thing with his groin, he just, you know, couldn't, he just couldn't really pop. And the, the, the late, the late issues that cost the Nets one of the other games in this series, you know, all that, all that weirdness, remember when that happened. Um, And I don't, I, I don't know if it was that limitation. Brown looked closer to normal to me in game five than I actually expected, but Jeff Green playing as well as he did. Shamit outplaying Joe Harris because Joe Harris strangely can't hit a shot anymore. Like such a phenomenally strange series for a lot of different reasons. I think Joe Harris's struggles of you have to give the Bucks credit there. That's where I mean they they have had a lot of good defensive possessions, and with the exception of a couple shots that he probably makes, it hasn't been easy pickings. Like all of Harris's field goal attempts, for the most part, have been under some pressure, as Doris Burke likes to say, some duress from the defense. And uh, you know I don't expect him to keep going two of eleven, but I think that's reflected 
in and, and again the Bucks are going to pick their poison and so Jeff Green gets open threes and if Jeff Green's going to make seven of eight seven threes in a row to start the game you you bow and you tip your cap and you say all right that that's that's the best we can do and by the way Jeff Green's transformation over the years from probably a completely overutilized, misused kind of more primacy player to a role player in this position has been really cool to watch. It has been. And I wonder what he wants from his career at this point, but I'd be interested in kind of what the what the bidding is for for him after this year but maybe he just wants to stay in Brooklyn maybe getting 120% of his minimum is is totally fine he has he has a place to play lots of guys that he has history with and who knows what when it'll happen but it's it's amazing that these playoffs have I've been both dispirited because we're not going to see those nets in all likelihood I mean here's hoping they're in it long enough that we do but it's also made me think this team could just be a destroyer next year if they can you know if they can put all these guys on ice get a decent enough seed and then just run roughshod in the in in the Eastern Conference playoffs. Well, if they're if they're healthy, I think there's no doubt at this point, at least for these playoffs, that they have a gear that other teams don't have. And you know, there's the only question mark would be if you could somehow counter this strategy they play, uh, because we to a degree we saw that in the regular season. Like none of their metrics, even when the uh, big three guys were healthy, none of their metrics were super crazy. Like oh, this is completely unstoppable. They didn't look like the 2017 Warriors per se, and a lot of that was. Because because of the defensive question marks, but a they have a roster that has a tremendous amount of shooting, and at this point, a lot of talent. Uh, a question I had that maybe you could think of more than I could off the top of your head because of your work on it in the last few years. Has there ever been a buyout guy that's played as well or as importantly as Blake Griffin? Huh. I'm trying. I'm sure there. My instinct is I'm sure there has been, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. Um, it would likely involve a LeBron James team because they often do. Yeah, but even those guys. I wonder if there's someone who had huge minutes and played really well that, that I'm that, again. Yeah, I think your your inventory of buyout guys is going to be quicker to access than mine. We need Nate here. He, he he's he's <laughs> so, the rain man on these. On someone this get us. Someone get a spreadsheet pronto. Yeah. But it, it's it, it is incredible, and it's another kind of part of this. And Brooklyn. When even though it might not be where they started the season, I mean, we knew it was going to be a stars and scrubs model to some extent, other than the $10 million that DeAndre Jordan is getting to not play. And by the way, like think about how wild that is that Kyrie and, and KD took less money, materially less money to to have DeAndre Jordan fit in. And then he's not playing at all. And I think they're kind of cool with it. I don't exactly know like that. That's not really coming up as much. But you have to do well in some of those moves on the margins. Like that is the only way to survive because as as great as those three are, you need other things that can help. And they got Bruce Brown functionally for nothing. They picked up Blake Griffin and LaMarcus, who then retired on the scrap heap. Jeff Green took the minimum for them. Nick Claxton as a second round pick could be an important part of the team next year, maybe at points this year. And so, yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely fascinating to see how Sean Marks has, has gone from having to, you know, building the asset base and everything else to making these moves on the margins because he used the asset base to get all these guys. Yep. All right. If we don't if we don't talk about the new happenings that that game that was like 12 hours ago that we're talking about in the NBA world feels like it's about 600 years ago now because it's a new day and uh, the earth shifts every day in the playoffs. <laughs> it, it, it does. And especially this year. And so I, I think we start with the injuries or let's call them health related issues because <laughs> it's not necessarily injuries and 
We don't know the full details on Kawhi Leonard. I mean, so there's a fear per Shamstranya that it is related to his ACL. Hopefully, if that is correct, it is a an ACL sprain rather than an ACL tear, not only because that's less damaging for Kawhi Leonard and the Clippers, but also because theoretically, a, a, a an ACL tear, even a partial one, puts Kawhi Leonard's next season in jeopardy. And so that would be even more crushing for everyone involved than just him being out for the remainder of these playoffs. So, I mean, so we just saw Kevin Durant win, you know, as the primary focus, as, you know, in certain cases, like basically the only driving force, primary driving force for a win against the game opponent. Batter up, Paul George. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's asking a lot. Oh, um, yeah. Especially- I mean, especially when Paul George, it's funny because there is this weird parallel, though I think Durant is better in this respect, that neither Durant nor George like is particularly great as a creator for other people. Mm. And Durant solved that by partially, you know, being so good that the passes to other people were more open than they often are. And we'll see. I mean, the, the Clippers do have wonderful spacing. They have a lot of good shooters on this team, but that's... I mean, I, I don't know how you replace Kawhi Leonard in, in whole or in part. Well, so so my reaction to this is actually not too different from Kyrie's ankle injury, um, which is there was a part of me and I wonder if I'm, I'm in a minority on this. There was a part of me that had expectations with some of these rosters that they might not be able to make it through the playoffs because of their injury history. And I think Kawhi has looked really good. So you you're hopeful that he continues to look really good. He plays in a style and his body is really big and physical and he moves in a way that you're not constantly wincing that he's going to injure himself. But the other night when I saw him come down or whatever it was, he that, that move bump, where he hurt. Yeah. yeah, and it just didn't look that good. And then his reaction didn't look that good, the way he was flexing his leg and well, kind of and wincing. The I mean, it's funny because Kawhi shows so little facial expression. I didn't say this right. on the pod, but I saw a look in his eyes when he was sitting on the bench watching his teammates play where he's like, oh, something's messed up. It, 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 it Exactly. Exactly. And as an athlete, there's a difference between pain and worry and it could just kind of look to me like Kawhi had that, like, what the hell is going on in my leg? Um, and as again, like right now, this is weird because we'll probably find out what the extent of the injury is not too long after this podcast goes up. But the future aside, if, if it's a if it's a full ACL injury um, and, you, you know, you lose a year and all that stuff, like at least at this point, medical technology, that's not that's not a career ender like it used to be. It just severely impacts probably a year of the guy's career, a year and a half, whatever it is. But even if it's not that severe, my, my reaction was still something less of shock and more of like, uh, yeah, man, like so, some of these guys, especially with the compressed schedule, uh, this this is sort of the tax that was going to be paid. Um, and Kyrie, as another example, I've mentioned his name earlier. I mean, he's only made it through like three postseasons in his career. Uh there's there's just certain players that Allen Iverson had this, although he he usually played through it. Your size, your style, the way you play, you are putting yourself in a position where your body is going to take damage and take wear and tear. And also Kyrie's injury, you know, knock on wood, it's not going to sideline him for the entire playoffs if the Nets can advance. But it's just these kinds of things where like that was my first thought, Danny, when I saw it during the game. I'm like, huh, I wonder if Leonard's going to like not be able to play in the next game or two or what this actually means. Because if the Jazz and we could switch gears completely because I've been buying more and more into the Jazz. If the Jazz get Mike Conley back from his, there's another player, right? His injury 
injury that isn't that completely unexpected either, and he's healthy for the little, this little stretch here. Maybe the Jazz become the team, and the Suns have stayed healthy, and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, and I mean, you think about how dramatically the Jazz Western Conference Championship equity has shifted over the last 36 hours. So if they had won Game 4, they would have been in prohibitive they would have been in prohibitively good position. And instead, they they end up losing that game. And and I would say the Clippers won it in some degree of dominant fashion, not not as dominant as it looks like it was going to be at certain points in time, but you get there. So, like, okay, you know, like the Jazz, it's, even though they have two home games, it looks like the Clippers, you know, the switching defense, like they figured out some of the offense. And, you know, we'll see what happens with Mike Conley and, and Donovan Mitchell is like looking better, but you, you worry about a re-injury there because it seems like he's re-injured it a couple of times with that right ankle or, you know, things on the chain, like that risk sort of paralleling earlier in Kevin Durant's career. And so, like, okay, you know, they can do this, but it's going to be difficult. And remember, congratulations, the Suns are already in and they're the healthiest team of any of the you know any of the the kind of like high-end contenders they don't have anybody then the the sun should raise a banner they should they should do that you know how people best best position team to win the championship for like three days (laughs) they just they should put a banner up at the beginning of the next series in game three and just be like western conference finalist and made it through crazy season healthy and then then if they keep going they should add banners i feel like they deserve that at this point and then this morning you get the Kawhi Leonard news, which we still don't have all of the full all of the full stuff, but we also get Chris Paul. Chris Paul. And so we again we don't know all of the news on Chris Paul. Sam Amick reporting that the next update on Chris Paul, I think the the Suns probably just put this out, that the next update will be on Saturday. Notably Saturday is before the next game, um, John Gambadoro had the Chris Paul has a positive test. We don't know exactly what that means. And it is very fortunate for the Suns that they have a lot of time here, but we're also in uncharted waters. So like, let's say Chris Paul vaccinated and, and tested positive for COVID at that point. We have a little bit of an idea from Jason Tatum and, and Fournier and numerous other players about like what happens, how you deal with, how you deal with it after you get full COVID. But this is a a very different circumstance, and Chris Paul is essential for for the success of the Phoenix Suns. We, we maybe they can win, they can handle a game or two, or they could just tread water enough. Remember, the Jazz would have home court, so if you could think about a theory where like Chris Paul's there. But as is often the case in the playoffs, and this could potentially be relevant for one Mike Conley soon enough, is that being available and being 100% are not the same thing. And we just have no idea what in the world's going to happen with Chris Paul when he gets back. It's incredible we're we're talking about all these injuries and this war of attrition and you know a guy with the maybe the biggest injury history of them all Joel Embiid is playing through an injury and that is kind of like constantly hanging in the balance I mean I mean it certainly looked, was in game 4 he looked like he had no lift right in game 4 so yeah I mean I just had that thought pop in my head, but but back to the COVID point. Um, I assume at this point, if he is indeed vaccinated, what a world we live in. We're <laughs> trying to figure out whether people are are vaccinated or not for the end for the health of the NBA playoffs and and odds making and things like that. If he is indeed vaccinated, then is Damian Lee was he the only player in the league who publicly had a breakthrough? Case I believe, like that. I I believe so, but it's it's hard to know for sure because of some of the you know what what we have we're working with extremely incomplete information. Exactly, and I think um, 
to that point, as someone who who many, many years ago had a COVID podcast, I would say that whether Paul even has symptoms at this point is probably a, a, a big indicator of what the future holds, because I I think the pattern for athletes has been if they don't have symptoms, um, they seem to have a shorter kind of run of the course where if he got the test because he had symptoms and the symptoms get worse, uh, you know, you you hope it's nothing too bad. It doesn't look like that's the case. But then it becomes longer before he is back on the basketball court. The the protocols, the, right, irrelevant of the protocols, basically. Yeah. So. It's disappointing, especially when you consider the performance that Chris Paul had in Game 4, the closeout game of that series against the Nuggets. It is extremely fortunate for the Suns that this happened when they might have a full week off. So, I mean, we don't know if a week is enough. We don't know exactly what in the world's going on here, but getting that week, and so that means we're roughly two, two and a half weeks from where the rubber really meets the road in terms of that series. So maybe that's enough time. But it's it's not even lunchtime. What's going to happen in the second half of the day? Well, and so so we have all the player stuff and, and that's really where you start. But then there's also everything else, which is, oh, by the way, Zion Williamson's going to have his third NBA season with his third head coach. Yeah. And this is the second time this year that a coach was hired and got fired within like basically their first season. And one of those teams made the play in tournament and then the other team. <laughs> The other team did not. And that is really fascinating. And also in both circumstances, it appears that the general manager who hired coach one is also going to stay in position to hire coach two. So that's really, really fascinating. Oh, and also Scott Brooks is no longer the head coach of the Wizards. So he was the seventh longest tenured coach in the NBA. Well, that's the biggest news. That's that's the one I'm really losing sleep over. No more Scott Brooks. Is is Donnie Nelson still with the Mavs? I, I no. can't even keep up. Donnie Nelson, that happened while we were recording. Donnie Nelson is <laughs> is gone. So the report from my colleagues at The Athletic, which Mark Cuban derided, called words that I, I choose not to generally swear on this podcast. Well, while it might be for other reasons, it certainly appears that there was at least some smoke and probably some molten embers there as well. Um, and so, I mean, and, and that's the other, you know, the, the interesting parallel between Brooks and Nelson is while Brooks, you know, like it doesn't feel like he's been with the Wizards forever and it's not a Popovich level institution. He is an important part of the like continuity for the Washington Wizards as important as that, you know, however you feel about said continuity. And then for Donnie Nelson, I mean, he has been a part of the, the Mavericks fabric for such a long time and, the reporting about the power struggle there and where it goes from here, absolutely fascinating. And there are two basketball games tonight. There are two basketball games tonight that are that are exceedingly important. These are two series that are at 2-2, and we know how a Game 5 in a 2-2 series often changes things. It is not definitive. Remember, just, just a week ago or two weeks ago, probably two weeks ago at this point, the Dallas Mavericks went up 3-2 and were getting a home game six and they lost the series. And so it's not definitive, but it is extremely important important and what Joel Embiid we get is is a huge story what the Clippers look like without Kawhi Leonard is a huge story the Atlanta Hawks could potentially be on the precipice like they you know we could be 12 hours less than that from the Atlanta Hawks having a 3-2 advantage going back to Atlanta potentially to make it Easter Conference Finals 
it it is at the least the craziest NBA postseason tournament I can think of in at least twenty five years. It, it is just absolutely wild. The the swings. Uh, you look at the series right now, uh, especially of course with Phoenix already moving on, and Philadelphia is the one you look at and you say like, all right, Philadelphia is going to bring home the bacon. They're going to actually take care of business here. But to the point of everything we've been talking about for the last few minutes, if anything goes the wrong way with Embiid's health, um, even even as far as like what version we get from the last game, all of a sudden the Hawks are up three two. I mean. <sighs> I, I got to take a shower, Danny. I'm, I'm all, I'm all well, lathered up here. And, and, and here's the way I'll try to summarize and quantify this. I cannot think of a year where, and we'll use the like, let's, let's just use my brain. It could be yours or whoever. If, if you were to say at a moment in time, who is the most likely champion or what is the most likely finals matchup? I think champion is in some ways the more interesting one here. I cannot think of a year where the answer to that in my mind changed more than this postseason and we're not even close to the end like the amount of time because some of the teams that look the best they have had players been knocked out by injury or and there many of them are already eliminated like the Lakers like what happened to them like there was I don't know I I would have to think about whether there was a point where I would have picked them as the most likely actually probably when they had that pretty strong lead against the Suns I might and remember at that point the Clippers were down to the Mavericks there was probably a point where I would have picked the Lakers as the champion as the most likely champion and you know Joel Embiid going down and everything that's gone on with the Jazz and they lost game one I mean it's Brooklyn looked like world beaters and then all of a sudden the wheels became completely off the wagon and they're at least mostly off the wagon right now. That is something truly special about this postseason. In many ways, it is mostly not a good thing, but it is definitely a memorable element of this postseason. Extremely memorable, extremely entertaining. More more twists than the plot of Mare of Easttown. Um, it, it is, yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel extremely comfortable in a feed-top... Brooklyn-Delphia finals. Yeah, we just take the healthy players that are remaining on every team and let them play. <laughs> repick, repick after each round. It's always been my scientist's dream to just reshuffle the rosters and 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 go. What about that? Yeah, I, I, I'm on board. That should probably be the title of the podcast. Yeah, incredible. Well, thank you so much for taking time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks as always, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks again to Ben Taylor for taking the time to come on. You can check out his awesome work really all over. It's mostly under the Thinking Basketball banner. YouTube channel is great. Patreon, Thinking Basketball is excellent as well. His book is great. I I read it a little while ago uh, uh, and really enjoyed it. And then, of course, you can also follow Ben on Twitter at E-L-G-E-E, number three, number five. And love having him on and particularly to talk about Kevin Durant. And I mean, that that just kind of fell into our laps. And we thankfully focused on that sort of stuff more than we focused on all of the other things that have befallen the league over the last few hours. And I'll have plenty of time to talk about that. You can also, of course, check out Dunked On and everything else um, where we'll spend more time on that. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but really wherever. And subscribing, downloading every episode that is particularly good for Real GM Radio because it's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. It's my availability and my guests. So it's always going to be kind of like this. And so subscription means that it will pop in your inbox, whatever podcast player you use, whenever that is. And you can also check out my other work. Nate and I are still doing Dunked On, you know, one public episode a week and then Dunked On Prime for everything else. Got a lot of ground to cover right now. I'm thinking about that. 
And we're doing the live shows, NBA cast, which is so much fun. And so you can use hot mic and, and sync the audio. It's so much better now. Nate and I are thrilled with the technology improvements that have made it easier for people to enjoy what we do. And that that's a great benefit for us. And I should have written work in the nearer term. I have some things in process, but uh, with the collarbone, I'm typing more slowly and it feels like I'm just a little bit behind. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because there will be plenty of time for everything. And I'm also going to start getting into draft stuff soon. And so that'll be primarily, I think, on Dunked on Prime, but we'll probably incorporate some of it into Dunked on Public as well. well. We'll piece that together in time. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or different, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I'll try to reply, but I'm admittedly not great about that, especially right now. Um, but that'll be soon. And my shoulder's progressing really, really well. Um, was Had a great physical therapy yesterday. So for those of you who ask, I really do appreciate it, but it's going very well. It just takes time. And so um, we'll, we'll see where things go from here, but I am very optimistic. So Thank you all so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.